Uh, good morning, family. Again, it's really wonderful to see all of you. Um, I normally wear my glasses when I preach, so if I if I look mad, it's because I'm squinting, not because I'm actually angry. So just so everyone's aware. Um, Today we're going to be continuing on in our series uh, in the book of Galatians. So if you want to go ahead and open, we're going to be in chapter 2. We're going to go through uh, from verses 1 through 21. Again, that's Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 21. So uh, Bible and theology teacher Michael Bird, he's uh, out of Australia, he made the argument, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that he believes that the letter to the Galatians and our English translations should be in all caps. It should be all capital letters throughout. And yes, well, why, Michael Bird? Uh, in ancient letter writing, it wasn't so much, you know, maybe you picture Paul kind of heaved over, uh, over a desk with a pen or with some sort of writing utensil, and he's writing down a letter to the church of Galatia. Most of the time, that wasn't how it happened. It would be somebody who was dictating the letter, and as he was dictating, he would have a scribe, and the scribe would write down everything that was being said. And Michael Bird says, you envision Paul screaming the letter to the Galatians, and you have some poor sap who's sitting there trying to write down everything as he's, you know, kind of resisting Paul, throwing things at him, and just, just so frustrated. He's like, that sounds pretty extreme, Michael Bird. Why would you say something like that? Well, consider the beginning of the letter that Trevor shared with us in the introduction to this sermon series. Uh, he cuts to the quick, doesn't he? He doesn't start with any of the typical, oh, hey, I'm thankful for you, I thank my God for you and for the grace shown to you. He cuts to the quick, directly to a rebuke. And he says, I am so shocked at how quickly you've abandoned the gospel and have run to a different gospel. Or consider, for instance, his own description of his state of mind as he's writing the letter, like we read in chapter 4. He's, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I am perplexed about you. I'm so bothered by what's going on with you guys that it feels like I'm having a baby. It hurts. And like, Paul, for those of you who've had children in this room, you're like, you don't know what you're saying. (laughs) But he did. He was in anguish regarding the situation of the church in Galatia. Or consider, again, the strong language that he uses about both the Galatians and also those who were misleading them, who were bringing false teaching. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's like, oh, you foolish Galatians, or some translations are called, you witless Galatians. And in chapter 5, he says things about the false teachers that I can't even repeat up here. If I, somebody's, I think I'm actually having to preach on that text, so I'm going to have to talk about it. But it's crass. It's intense. It's visceral language that Paul is using regarding these people. And you stop to think about that for a second. What's so stunning is, consider 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, you have a church that has factions because they're following different leaders. You know, I follow Peter, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Jesus. You have a man sleeping with his stepmom, and the church is approving it. You have rampant spiritual gift practices that aren't leaving way for genuine edification. It's being used selfishly. And you have people getting drunk at communion feasts. (laughs) And yet, 
Paul begins the letter with gratitude, expressing love, expressing grace, expressing uh, just the sense of overwhelmed joy at what God is doing among the church in Corinth. What is it about the church in Galatia and what was happening in the church in Galatia that so stirred Paul, that so got him heated? Well, today's text gets to the heart of what so concerns Paul. Uh, Today we're going to finish what Trevor in the introduction of the series called the history section of Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, discussing a dispute that comes up between Paul and the apostle Peter. And in it, we're given a glimpse into, I think, what really makes Paul tick and what makes him ticked, (laughs) what gets on his nerves, the thing that actually gets him, furious even. So again, we're looking at Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Please read with me. But when Kepha, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from the Jews... Sorry, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. But, so, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kepha before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews and by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, we call upon you in the name of Jesus for help to hear and help to heed what we hear. That we would come to understand the gospel afresh in our hearts. That we would come to see the goodness and the authority and the beauty of our risen king, the only true king, the one who was and who is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's to your word that we turn. We pray we would honor your name as we sit under your word now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The main thrust of what we will be looking at today is simply this, that at base level, 
the most foundational, the only really vital thing about any of us in this room. The one thing that also unifies us in this room is faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. No other thing saves us. No other thing so defines us, so shapes us. And any effort to say otherwise compromises this indispensable reality. Any addition to this usurps the goodness and the authority of the gospel and compromises it. Uh, We're going to cover this passage under two headings. I'm not doing three, two. Uh, A very public rebuke and then the wonder of saving faith. So um, very public rebuke being the first heading, uh, starting verse 11 and going through verse 14. One of the most common misconceptions, I think it's particularly a westernized misconception about the Christian faith, is that once one has the right doctrine, the right ideas, the right way of thinking you know, down, we got all the good doctrine stuff, right? We know who Jesus is. We know what he has done. All's well. We're good. As long as our doctrine, our way of thinking about the world is aligned correctly, we're fine. But clearly, what we have here, what we see here, is that Peter missed that memo. Because what we see and what we just read is a leading figure in the early church who's preaching the same gospel as Paul. Think about that for a moment. Paul has just gone through, as we've heard the past few weeks, Paul goes at great pains to communicate that the gospel that he is preaching isn't something made from man. It's not something of his own imagination. It was a revelation of the Lord that Paul then went and confirmed with the leaders of the church, with James and with Peter. And they were all unanimous of one mind. Yes, this is the gospel we proclaim. This Peter who preaches this gospel is walking in a way that is contrary to the gospel. In verse 14, you're literally uh, not walking straight towards the truth of the gospel. He's veering, but he's not veering in his notion of what the gospel is. He's veering in his practice of the gospel. He's veering in his practice of church life. What is it that he does? Well, in short, he ceases to share table fellowship with his Gentile brothers and sisters. And it's out of fear of a particular group of Jewish teachers who were apparently insistent on maintaining a certain distance between themselves and these Gentile sinners. We don't know exactly what it was they were teaching, but all likelihood is that they were teaching stricter adherence to the law of Moses. And particularly things like the food laws and circumcision and probably something along the lines of the holy days, the Sabbath and the keeping of the Sabbath. And we're not sure about Peter's rationale for his actions. Scripture doesn't give us an in-depth analysis of what Peter was afraid of, what was going on in Peter's mind at the moment. The only thing it tells us is that out of fear of these teachers, he breaks fellowship with the Gentile believers. Now, at the, on the outset, it looks like this is just a flagrant just example of Peter just turning his back, and, and you know, it's, it's borderline racism. I don't know if that's exactly what's going on with Peter here, because think about Acts 10, 
right? For those of you who, don't, who aren't familiar with the text, Acts 10, uh, you, you can read it later on. In short, Peter goes up to a rooftop and he's praying. And while he's praying, he gets hungry and the Lord intervenes and basically puts him in a trance. He gives him a vision. In the vision, he sees a sheet get rolled down. And on this sheet are this whole litany of animals. And they're unclean animals. Unclean according to Jewish tradition, to Jewish law. And the Lord speaks to Peter and says, hey, Peter, you're hungry. Kill. Eat. Take something. And Peter says, Lord, I haven't defiled myself from my youth. I've never eaten an unclean thing. And the Lord says, Peter, do not call unclean what I have called clean, what I have made clean. This happens three times, and the sheet rolls back up. The vision is over. This man comes up to tell Peter, hey, a man named Cornelius is summoning you. Cornelius happens to be a Roman centurion, a military guard, a high caliber military guard of the Roman Empire. Not a good guy. Not something you want to hear. It's nerve wracking. But the Lord says, Peter, go to him because I've sent him to, I'm sending you to him. Peter goes, he goes to the house of Cornelius, he walks in, and he finds not just Cornelius, but his whole household, this whole group of people here, waiting to hear what Cornelius says is a word that will tell us how to be saved. And Peter says, well, what am I going to do? He preaches the gospel to them, and before he preaches, though, he says, apparently, I was mistaken, apparently anyone who fears God of any nationality, of any, from any place, of any culture, can receive the saving grace of God. And then the Holy Spirit comes on the people as they hear the gospel, and Peter's sitting there kind of gobsmacked, like, well, I guess we should baptize them. They've just received the Holy Spirit. We should probably bring these guys into the church. And that's the beginning in some senses, of the Gentile mission. Paul goes on later on. We, uh, Eleni read from us in chapter 13 where the Gentile mission goes, continues to go forward. But this was from Peter. This was to Peter. I don't think Peter looks at that situation and that occurrence in his life and says, that yeah, was just, yeah, I ate too much pizza that night or anything like that. He's probably saying, I know what we should do. We should be eating with the Gentiles. These teachers, these evangelists, these Jewish uh, professors of faith are pushing that we shouldn't eat with them. You know what? I don't want to stir the pot too much. It's probably easier to just say, yeah, it's okay. Let's just separate from them. And what Paul says is that previously Peter had been eating with the Gentiles. He had been doing what he was supposed to be doing. And the craziest part about it is that Peter's hypocrisy, knowing what he should be doing, but doing the opposite, is made that much worse by the fact that his hypocrisy is so compelling that he convinces the other Jews who were there to embrace the same practice, and even Barnabas, the one who had, along with Paul, participated in bringing the gospel to the Gentiles in the first place. The, the, the one who you would think, good old Barnabas. There's no way Barnabas is going to turn around and do the wrong thing. Barnabas is compelled to break table fellowship with the Gentiles as well. And all of this leads Paul to a very straightforward and, again, very public rebuke of Peter. We read in verse 14, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you don't even practice these things as a Jew. Why do you think it right to force such practices on these Gentile believers? Are these brothers and sisters lacking something with regards to their belonging to the people of God such that you shun them? Is there something that these brothers and sisters lack in being made to be right before God? And I think this begs the question, what is required to be a part of the family of God? What is required to be made right before God? And that leads to our next point, which is going to take up the rest of our time together, the wonder of saving faith, verses 15 through 21. Here, Paul transitions to the crowning jewel of the Christian faith, the defining article which establishes all those who call upon the name of the Lord, namely justification by faith. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You can sense the sarcasm and the scorn as Paul uses uh, some pejorative shorthand for the way in which the false teachers were approaching these Gentile believers, in which Peter was complicit through his silence and his acquiescence to their exclusion. This scorn and the ire which so compelled Paul to speak was due to seeing a rupture in the life of the early church, a parting of ways with the most fundamental and culture-forming reality in the life of God's people. And that reality is, as Paul says, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That is to say, the only thing which effectively deals with humanity's greatest and most pervasive illness, the sickness of sin which places us all in cahoots with the forces of darkness, which is demonstrative of our allegiance with that which undoes the goodness of God and his creation, with that which puts us under the just wrath of a good God, who will exact his judgment over the guilty. The only thing that effectively deals with sin and would therefore make us right before God is faith in the person and work of Jesus, the Messiah. That's it and nothing, not one crumb more. Now, what is meant here by faith? Well, the Reformers articulated a threefold understanding of faith, and I find this to be really helpful with three words. Um, basically, uh, they're Latin words, but I'll, I'll try to I'll translate. Uh, notitia, which is the content of faith, the message of the gospel itself, the message of the forgiveness of sins. Ascensus, which is conviction, the, the gut-level, gut-wrenching sensation that this is true and that I must respond. And fiducia, which is active obedience or allegiance. This faith, it's important for us to understand this. Saving faith is a whole person experience. This isn't just, it's not easy believism. It's not I come and I confess and I'm good the rest of my life and makes no difference for the rest of it as we're going to read later on in this passage. It can't be reduced to mental assent, though it does entail that. And it can't be reduced to just doing the right thing, to simple obedience, though it also entails that. It's a full-bore casting of ourselves unto the person and work of Jesus. 
and from beginning to end, aspiring to see his goodness and glory fill the whole of every facet of our lives. It's a reworking in its totality of our lives, our allegiances, and our loves. And notice what great lengths Paul goes here to show the nature of this. Follow his logic here. Uh, Three times he repeats this phrase, works of the law. He moves from this general statement, this general observation in verse 16 by saying that a person, an individual, is not justified by works of the law. And then he goes on to say, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by Justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So we who have experienced the saving work of Christ, we who currently today are in the congregation among the people of God, we know that no one is saved by works of the law, is justified by works of the law. And then he concludes, verse 16, by stating that no one is justified by works of the law. The words no one, in my English translation, it could literally be rendered not one of all flesh. So if you bear flesh, you will not be justified by works of the law. Presumably that's everyone. (laughs) What does Paul here mean by works of the law? He means simply the keeping of the totality of the commandments that are issued in the first five books of our Bible, of the Old Testament in Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And there's a connection there, right? It's, it's all the works, all the things that were called to be done by those people, by the people of Israel, and that we're called to see as well, as a grace, as a gift, but not as saving, not as something that would make us right before God. The works of the law were given, as we're going to read in the next couple chapters after this, the works of the law were given as instruction for the people of God. Instruction in what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, what would be pleasing in the sight of the Lord at that time, but also instructive to show that we can't do it. That there's not a soul who gets to keep this whole thing. There's not a soul who's made pure by our righteous acts. There's not a righteous one among us who keeps the whole thing. It's meant to convict us of our sin, to remind us of our imperfection, and to remind us of our ample need for grace, for forgiveness. Now consider for just a second here, because it's not immediately evident. What's the logic of moving from... Paul's rebuke, the story about him rebuking Peter for segregating himself and others through his influence, to this discussion of what it means to be found acquitted of our guilt before a holy God, this conversation about justification by faith. What's the connection between our being made righteous through faith in Christ, which Paul continued to expound on for the remainder of the letter, and who we choose to share table fellowship with. Well, the language of justification is law court language, right? You go into a law court and there's two options. You leave guilty or you're declared just or innocent. And the problem is no human being who ever enters that courtroom enters innocent, enters just. And the wonder of justification by faith is that because of Jesus, the guilty 
aren't declared innocent because they're not innocent. They're declared righteous. They're declared just. This is the judgment seat that all individual persons, everyone, all flesh must go through. And for those who confess Jesus Christ as the true and ultimate Lord of all and believe in the core of their being that God raised him from the dead, the judgment on you, on those who confess, is just, righteous, forgiving. You could say that this is the individual aspect, the individual experience of justification, what we all go through upon our confession of faith. But it doesn't end there. One is not simply acquitted and then released into the world to try and you know, conjure up an existence worth living. What happens if you're forgiven? Do you just go on and just keep sinning? Do you just go on and live the life that you did before you were forgiven? Before you were ransomed? Before you were reconciled to God? And Paul anticipates this and he addresses that. He says, no, of course not. Jesus isn't a servant of sin. No. A death has occurred. But it's not our death. It's Jesus' death. And the death he dies is in our stead. But he goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He goes to say, God's grace toward me was not in vain. The work of the cross was not in vain. It's a new life that I live, but it's not my own life. It's not life as I think it ought to be lived. It's my life drawn into the life of Jesus. My life, our life, is inextricably, it's unbreakably bound to that of Jesus. And in him, bound also to all those who call upon his name. Theologians often talk about our, our, our union with Jesus Christ, that this, that this being crucified with Christ, this, this oneness that we experience upon forgiveness. When we're declared righteous, though guilty, we're simultaneously declared to be a part of the family of God. We're adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, co-heirs with Jesus Christ, inheriting all of the wonderful graces and glories that are in store for Him. And we're knit together inextricably to all of those in his body, all of those who confess Jesus as Lord, all of those who confess him as king. The staggering miracle of justification by faith is one which, though experienced on a personal level, of course, is at the end of the day the miracle of a new birth. But it's not just a new birth of individuals, but of a people Peter goes on to say in his letter, which is stunning to think about, the, the, the epistle to, to, uh, to, that Peter writes in 1 Peter, when we read the stuff that we've read in Galatians today. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is what we could call the corporate aspect of our justification. It's not just that we're, we are saved as peoples, we're individually saved, but we're drawn into a body that is not our own. And it's a body, amazingly, filled with people that we don't get to choose who we're related to. We don't get to choose who our brothers and sisters are in this body. It's not an affinity group. It's not a, a getting together and doing habitual stuff that we like to do together. It's a group of people who we're related to by bonds that are stronger than death. And that's amazing. And herein lies the connection between, again, the justification, the forgiveness, the making right before God of the individual saint and Peter's hypocrisy. We are not allowed to determine who's worthy to call themselves a child of God and a co-heir with Christ except on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done. We don't get to declare who's in and who's out except on the basis of faith and their confession of Jesus Christ. And this is why it was so offensive to Paul to see Peter and the others refusing to share table fellowship with the Gentile Christians. The practice itself was an outright denial of the soul sufficiency of the person and work of Jesus, leading them to deny the unity that they shared with these beloved brothers and sisters. Peter confessed with his mouth and denied with his steps what he should have, what he should have professed and what he should have practiced. And Paul, and out of an act of abundant mercy, speaks and rebukes and ceases Peter's madness. Again, like I just read, Peter, Paul says at the end of today's text, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And at the end of this letter, Galatians in chapter 6, he states it similarly. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The life we live after being justified is no longer our own. It is the life of Christ in us individually and among us corporately, by the power of the Spirit, renewing us daily and conforming us all into the likeness of God's Son. If we are justified, then we have died to the world and it to us. All of the standards and commonplaces, those things that we use to identify ourselves, those things that we use to justify our existence, whatever it might be, I belong to this group, I belong to that group, I belong to this thing over here, I'm good at this, I excel at this, all the things we use, not just to judge ourselves, but that we in turn turn around and judge others by, are put to death. 
John Webster, one of my theological heroes, uh, he passed away recently, about four years ago. He had a knack for describing what happened to Peter during this dispute with Paul. Again, a mature man, you would think. (laughs) A man who preaches the gospel. A man who you'd think after he dug his own grave time and time again with talking with Jesus and then in the new and then in Acts messing up time and time again you'd think he'd learn but he like us needs the continual reminder of the gospel the gospel comes to us as a bomb the gospel comes to us as a healing and restoring force but it comes to us as a force and before it restores it levels This is John Webster. Christian faith and therefore Christian teaching emerges out of the shock of the gospel. Christian faith and therefore Christian teaching takes its rise in the interruption of all things in Jesus Christ. For he, Jesus Christ, now present in the power of the Holy Spirit, is the great catastrophe of human life and history. In him, all things are faced by the one who absolutely dislocates and no less absolutely reorders. To this, this abolition and recreation, Christian faith and therefore Christian teaching offers perplexed and delighted testimony. That perplexity and delight, and delight, that sense of being at one and the same time, overwhelmed and consumed, yet remade and reestablished, are at the heart of the church, or as we might call it, Christian culture. This is what the gospel does. It's not gentle at the front. It destroys us. But it doesn't destroy us. It destroys our inordinate loves. It destroys our ways in which we perceive the world, in which we order the world, our value systems that we hold to that demean and demonize others, our ways of understanding ourselves that lift us up in categories that have nothing to do with reality, that correspond with nothing that God has intended. And God breaks in. And says, there's one thing, there's one thing that will make you right. And there's one thing then at the end of the day that matters and that unifies, that brings together and defines a people. And it is a word from outside of ourself. It is a reality from outside of ourself. It is Jesus Christ. And it is him crucified for us. This is good news, beloved. But it is judgment And it is consolation. And just like Peter, we need to hear this word time and again. Just like Peter, we're not done the second we receive the truth of the gospel. Just because we're reborn doesn't mean that we're finished. We we, we haven't made it yet. But life is a lifelong trajectory in the direction of our minds and our hearts and our attitudes and our affections and everything else being reshaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And what that frequently entails 
is our petty gods that we put up in the place of the gospel being torn down, wrecked, destroyed, so that we might be made new after that which lasts and that which truly matters. In conclusion, beloved, there's so much, there's so much that we could say about this text. There really is. But in our current cultural moment, I, I think I'd be remiss to not make a comment about the issue of race In this moment, in this time, the world is screaming about this issue of race. And there's a million thoughts. There's probably probably a a thousand different perspectives on this thing, on this issue right here in this room. And we all have different feelings about it. But you know the one thing that I find the most staggering about this public debate about the issue as it stands right now in our culture. The wrongheadedness of it, because at the end of the day, there's only one thing that really cures it. At the end of the day, there's only one thing that cures both the evil of racism and the evil of trying to deal with racism on terms that are not founded in the gospel. And that is itself the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to make a people for himself. Listen to the word of God, brothers and sisters. Hear from, this is from the book of Romans. Regardless of all the wrongheaded arguments and everything else that, that are going on right now about this very topic, what stands as one of the great and most consistent fruits of the gospel throughout the New Testament is the breaking down of barriers between peoples that God might make one new people out of the two, as Ephesians 2.15 tells us. Think about Romans 3. After declaring that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. This is free grace. This is justification by faith. In the immediate verses that follow, Paul says, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Or think of Galatians 3, all the exposition of the gospel that starts from verses 1 all the way through the chapter, and it ends with, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Consider Ephesians 2. Where Paul says in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then immediately after that, in verse 15, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The gospel, if you love the gospel, if we love justification, then we have to love what the gospel was intended to do, what the gospel actually accomplished. And what the gospel accomplished was making a people unto God, renewing and restoring a people unto God from every tongue, tribe, language, people, and nation. Whatever the conversation might be out there, it is truncated if it is without the gospel. But beloved, that doesn't mean that we get to sit out on it. It means that we had to be more vocal about it. 
We don't have to be vocal like the world is. We don't have to say the same. I disagree with 90% of the stuff that I read about the race issue right now. But does it abdicate me from my responsibility to love, to pursue those who are different from me, who feel alienated from me because of their skin color, because they're different from me, because they look different from me, because they sound different from me? We're obligated, brothers and sisters, to put forth the only real thing that will break the barriers. Not just of racism, but of classism. Of, of, of finding our identity in any and everything else. There's one fundamental thing that unites. And the only reason is because at heart what's wrong is that people are estranged from a good and holy God. And simultaneous to being made right with God, we are called then to be made right with one another in the body of Christ. This is the gospel that we were given. This is the working out of the gospel that we were given. And I pray that we would walk forward in faithfulness and courage. Or we, you, the, the wonder about the gospel is that you kind of get hated by both sides, <laughs> right? So you, you don't find a lot of friends except for inside the church. But the resources of the gospel are the only things that are going to bring restoration, not just to the brokenness in the world, but the brokenness and the things that we experience inside the church. Let us pursue, brothers and sisters, this reality, but not pursue it as an end in and of itself. Again, racial reconciliation isn't an end in and of itself. It is a fruit of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to make a people unto himself. Pray with me.